Good morning. How are you? Good. Uh, Steve, uh, what was that? What was the website again? STLBQ. You know, if you'd add one more B in there, you'd probably get more hits. <laughs> BBQ. Uh, open your Bibles to Second uh, Timothy. We're going to continue looking at this passage on the Scripture. We're going to start in verse 14, 2 Timothy 3.14. Paul says to Timothy, he says, But you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. I charge you, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing in kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and teaching. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. So in light of uh, what... Paul has said here about the value of the word. He exhorts Timothy, or really he charges him. He even says, I charge you. Uh, He charges him to preach the word. So the value of the word, as we've seen, is that the, the word leads us to salvation in Jesus Christ. The word of God uh, trains us in righteousness. The word convicts us and exposes our sins. The word shows us the right way to walk. It corrects us. It says this is the correct way to walk. The word um, transforms our hearts, our mind, our soul in what is right. Right doctrine and right living. The word produces mature, well-rounded character, which results in a fruitful life, a life that is full of good works. The word leads us to Jesus. Amen. So in light of the importance of the word, the word is code for the Holy Scriptures, or what we call today the Bible. Um, In light of that, Paul gives a charge here to Timothy. And I want to look at three things this morning. I want to look at, one, the, the, the solemnity of the charge, number two, the contents of the charge, and then number three, uh, a further reason that Paul gives for the charge to preach the word. First, the, what I call the solemnity or gravity of the charge. This isn't just an exhortation. Paul gives a charge and he says this in 4.1. I charge you before God and the Lord Jesus Christ who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing in kingdom, preach the word. He says uh, he is charging him before God, meaning in the presence of God or in the sight of God. 
the charge to Timothy and really the charge to all preachers is that God sees your work. He is observing whether or not you are being faithful to fulfill your ministry by preaching, preaching the word. He knows if you're pleasing people, overlooking their sins, or flattering their faults. He sees if it is his word that is being preached and not your word. Paul is telling Timothy and really all preachers to imitate his own example in handling the word. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 2. We'll come back to Timothy in a moment. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul is uh, talking about the new covenant ministry. And he says this, verse 14, 2 Corinthians 2.14, Now thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one we are the aroma of death to death, and to the other the aroma of life to life. And who is sufficient for these things? For we are not as many, or the rest, or the others. We are not peddling the word of God. But as of sincerity, but as from God, we speak in the sight of God in Christ. Chapter 4, verse 2. But we have renounced, we as Paul Paul saying, we, we who are preaching the word, we have renounced the hidden things of shame, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. As Paul said in Galatians 1, after, after saying that if someone preaches another gospel to you, let him be anathema, he then, he then asked them rhetorically, am I now pleasing God or am I pleasing men? So Paul said to the Ephesians elders when he departed, I have not shunned to declare unto you the whole counsel of God. Because he understood that God was observing his ministry. But secondly, God was going to hold him accountable for his ministry. So when Paul gives the charge to Timothy back here in 2 Timothy, he says, I charge you in God's sight. But then he reminds them that Christ will return and Christ will judge the living and the dead. Those who preach and teach the word of God will give an account to God for their stewardship. As a matter of fact, James says in James 3, verse 1, that those who teach will be, receive a stricter judgment. A stricter judgment. Why? Because those with greater influence will receive the greater judgment. Because the, their influence is either for good or it's for bad. And it's a, it, it, for a preacher to be in error, for a preacher to, to teach what is false, has a much, does much more damage than if just an individual holds a private opinion that is erroneous. So he, he uh, charges Timothy uh, in preaching the word to realize your, your God is observing your preaching or lack of preaching of the word. God is observing your ministry. God will hold you accountable in your ministry of the word. 
Sounds pretty solemn to me. So what does he charge him to do when he says preach the word? What does this mean? It means this. First, that the focal point of the pastoral ministry is the teaching and preaching of the word. The, the, the pastor is not called to share, to entertain, to dialogue, to amuse. He is called to preach. To preach means to declare, to proclaim, to cry aloud the word of God. It means to be a herald who, who literally shouts out the good news of the gospel. Amen? Amen? The pulpit is not the place for the pastor to, to attempt to entertain people, to share his thoughts, his, his ideas, and his opinions. It is the place where God's word is spoken with authority. He is merely a messenger, and the message is God's. And the messenger has no authority to change the message. He is an ambassador, but Christ is the king. And that is who he represents. So how is he to preach the word? What is the manner of his preaching? Paul tells us here in 4.2, Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching. He says be ready in season. Out. Be ready means be uh, instant, be urgent, be diligent, Many various translations. The idea is to be always prepared and even eager to preach the Word. Always prepared. Always studying. Always learning. Always growing. Always full of the Word. Secondly, he says, in season and out of season. Literally, it means in good times and bad times. This means to, be, to, to preach the word not only when it is convenient, not only when people are disposed, but even in difficult times, even in the face of opposition. Paul said to the Thessalonians, but even after we, have suffered, we had suffered before and were spitefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we were bold in our God to speak to you the gospel of God in much conflict. The preaching of the word is not for sissies. It is not for man-pleasers. It is not for the wannabe celebrity. They will cave to public opinion. They will seek popularity. But the true preacher of God's word is to speak the truth in spite of opposition, in spite of criticism, in spite of uh, apathy. <clears throat> Paul thirdly says they are to convince to convince, to bring conviction by exposing error and sin. Thereby to convince people of their need for Jesus Christ. Much of the apathy toward the gospel today is rooted in the fact that, that by and large we hold a uh, Rousseauian view of human nature, <clears throat> which means that man is basically good. And surveys even show that the majority of evangelicals, when asked the question, are people basically good, say yes. Well, if we're basically good, we don't need a Savior. But if we're basically bad, if we're fallen, if we're sinful, 
If we can't save, or save ourselves, then we need Jesus. Because Jesus is the only prophet, the only religious teacher that has ever come and said, not, I'll show you the way, I am the way. I am the life. I am the resurrection. He's the only one that has come back from the grave. He's the only one that promised eternal life through union with him. And so we need to see our need for Jesus because by nature, we're so full of ourselves. We really believe the lie that we're basically good, don't we? I do. I think I'm awesome. <laughs> now, my wife thinks I'm awesome. But, you know, see, you hear that amen? I finally got an amen from my wife. We are not awesome. You know, I've, I've been in uh, ministry for a long time and counts a lot of people. And, and some of you have uh, been to AA and other forms of counseling. And one of the first principles you learn is that the big change only begins when you admit the problem. Right? Now, when you excuse the problem, people don't change. People say, well, I'm just, I'm just, I'm just like this. I'm just, I'm just quick-tempered. You know, or I'm just this, or I'm just that. As if it's not a problem. Well, the problem never changes because it's never acknowledged as a problem. The guy who said, the, the alcoholic who says, oh, I, I don't have a problem. I can control my drinking. He's the guy that's drunk every night, right? It's when, when, it's when he says, you know what, I got a problem. It's out of control. I have a problem. That's the person that can change. And it's not just drinking. It can be drinking, it can be drugs, it can be pornography, it can be marriage problems, it can be a whole list of things. When you say, you know what, I have a problem, that, that admission is the place where change begins and transformation begins. But it's, it, we, we fight it. <clears throat> we fight that admission. We're reluctant to, to admit that we have a problem. We're reluctant to admit that, that we need to take responsibility ourselves. We want to blame other people. We want to blame our spouse, blame our kids, blame society, blame the church, blame somebody. Blame, 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 blame. Instead of taking hold of one's life and acknowledging that my life is not a product of, of random forces. It's not a product of Freudian impulses. It's a product of choices that I make. And I have to make the right choices. Yes, other people may fail you, they may betray you, they may sin against you, but you are responsible for your response. And we have to be willing to admit where we fail and where we sin. And yes, I said the word sin. So the pastor's duty is to expose. He does this by speaking what is true. Speaking what is true even when what is true is not popular. You know, we, don't, we in the modern church don't have a problem that the church hasn't always had. Every, every age has to fight the battle of truth versus error. Every generation has to, of the church has to be faithful to the Word of God. Every generation faces pressures to dilute the preaching of the Word to some way 
uh, rub, rub the edges off the gospel, some way to make God nicer than he is. Some way to eliminate those, those horrible doctrines of sin and judgment. The, those terrible, awesome doctrines of a blood atonement for sin. But the preacher's duty is to speak truth, even when it's not convenient and even when it's not welcome. He's also to rebuke, Paul says. This word is, is used, uh, I don't know, maybe a hundred times. I didn't count, but I mean, it's all over the New Testament. It's used of when Jesus rebuked the storm, told the storm, be still, be quiet. It's when he rebuked uh, the fever from, from uh, Peter's mother-in-law. It's when he rebuked the demons. He said, be silent or come out. It is, a, it is to warn sternly. It is to give a negative command or a negative exhortation. And we don't like negatives, do we? No. Because it has to be fun. It has to be exciting. It has to be radical. It has to be something other than just good and right. One author says the idea of this word here, rebuke, is that the minister is not merely to reason about sin and convince men that it is wrong, but he may solemnly admonish them not to do it and to warn them of the consequences. Or as Paul said to Timothy, he said, these things that I'm teaching you speak and exhort and convict with all authority. But he's also to exhort, and this is the word, well-known word used many times in the New Testament, to encourage, to beseech. It can mean admonish, it can mean beg, it can mean plead, it can mean ask, it can mean persuade, it can mean animate. And he's to do this with long-suffering and teaching, Paul says. Long-suffering is the attitude of, of the one who labors and, and preaches the word. He's not to convince out of anger. He's not to rebuke out of, out of uh, frustration. He's to be patient. He, he, he's to understand that growth takes time, not just days or weeks or months, but years. So he's to be faithful. He's to be long-suffering in his ministry but he's, the content of his ministry is doctrine or teaching. And as I said, every sermon has doctrine. Every song has doctrine. Every movie has doctrine. Because we're constantly being taught this is true, this is false, this is right, this is wrong. So why does Paul give this charge to Timothy? Well, as you probably know, 2 Timothy is the last, Paul's last writing. And we have here his last words to Timothy, at least his last written words. He implored Timothy to, to come and, and bring him a, a, a cloak and some books and parchments. So we, we 
hope that they met again. But as far as his written inspired words, this is the last message he gave to Timothy, which shows us the, the, the importance and value that Paul put on the word, right? The last thing he wanted to remind him is preach the word. Preach the word. But also, there was, there was a, Paul was warning Timothy not just charging him, but warning him of apostasy to come. So he says in in chapter 4, after he says to preach the word, he says then in in chapter 4, verse 3, for the time will come when they will not endure, or you could translate it tolerate, they will not tolerate sound doctrine. But according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn away their ears from the truth and be turned aside to fables. Well, the question is, who's they? He just says, I don't know, and they, and they will turn away. Well, the they he's already referred to in chapter 3. Notice in 3.1, he says, but know this. That in the last days, perilous times will come. For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Stop there. Now, just reading that, you think clearly Paul is describing you know, the decadent Greco-Roman culture, right? Paul's looking out his window and he's, he's seeing the pagans worship their idols and having their orgies. Or, you know, he's describing you know, this. What's striking about this is, is not the, the, the uh, how, how, what's the best word? The, the uh, depressing description of human nature here. What's striking is that after he gives this description, then he says in verse 5, having a form of godliness, but denying his power. He's not talking about people on the outside. He's talking about people who are trying to be on the inside of the church. People who are making a profession. And so what we see here is, is the contrast between, between someone's true character and their, and their profession, their outward appearance. That they can have an appearance of godliness and yet this be their true character is an astounding contrast. You know what I'm saying? Astounding contrast. But Paul is saying that what we have here is, is hypocrisy. What we have here is deception. As a matter of fact, he goes on and he says, that these people are always learning, but they can never come to the knowledge of the truth. And then he says here in verse um, 13, he says, but evil men and imposters will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. Deceiving and being deceived. Sometimes you have to ask yourself, well, when you see one of those snake oil sales salesmen, do they know? Do they know that what they're selling isn't, Good? 
Or are they, them, is, are they deceived and then thus they're deceiving? Or are they just deceiving? The danger is that in, in the moral realm, when you start deceiving, you start to get deceived. So whether you start deceived and then you propagate your own deception, or whether you're propagating deception to appear, you know, appear righteous, to have a form of godliness that doesn't match the truth, you end up being deceived. And it's a vicious circle. So Paul says that they, they will uh, deceiving and being deceived because they go together. The most effective deceiver is the person who believes their own lies. And I've been fooled, trust me, I've been fooled by people. I've been fooled in counseling people where I really believed some, what so-and-so told me. Well, and that was until I, I heard the other side, until I really investigated, until I really learned all of the facts, not just some of the facts, right? You know, I love the oath you have to take in, in the courtroom to tell the truth, right? The whole truth and nothing but the truth. That is required. Because you can tell the truth, but add a little lie, right? Or you can tell the truth, but not all of it, and you give a false impression. There's a lot of ways to deceive. There's a lot of ways to mislead. There's a lot of ways to, to uh, give off false impressions to people. So the, the, we, what we have here is we have people who are hypocritical and deceptive, and they were attempting to... to Align themselves with the church. They were they were getting they were creeping into homes and recruiting people. Paul says recruiting women to join their ranks. But in fact, they were apostates. They had the form of godliness, but Paul says they denied its power. Its power. In light of this danger, Paul is giving Timothy this charge to preach the word, to keep the word central. But why were they turning away? Why didn't they want to hear the word? What's wrong with the word? Isn't the word good? Well, Paul says here in chapter 4, Verse 3, it says, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. Why? But according to their own desires. Because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers. They will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. The reason they were turning was because of their own desires or passions or lusts. They would not endure or tolerate sound and wholesome teaching because it contradicted their passions. One author says this, he says, they will seek such kind of preaching as will accord with their carnal desires or such as will palliate their evil propensities and deal gently with their vices. Or as it says in Isaiah chapter 30, they say to the seers or teachers, do not see. Or to the prophets, do not prophesy to us what is right. Speak to us 
smooth things speak to us illusions. Or as Jeremiah 5 says, an astonishing and horrible thing has been committed in the land. The prophets prophesy falsely and the priests rule by their own power and my people love to have it so. Their own desires. They wanted the smooth word. They wanted prophecies of peace, prophecies of abundance, prophecies that all is well, regardless of how you live. Jeremiah 23, if you want to turn there with me, is is maybe the major indictment of the false prophet, the false teacher that we, that we see in, in Scripture. Really, the, the starting in verse 9, but we won't start there because of, the, of, of time, but that's where he begins his lament about the false teachers. But in verse 16, he says of chapter 23, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesied to you. They make you worthless. They speak a vision of their own heart, not from the mouth of the Lord. They continually say to those who despise me, the Lord has said, you will have peace. And to everyone who walks according to the dictates of his own heart, they say, no evil shall come upon you. This is the one thing that all false prophets and false teachers have in common is they palliate evil. They condone carnality. They somehow take human desires and elevate them to a spiritual quality. One author said, such persons could have teachers according to their own lust, that is, their own tastes or wishes. They would have those who coincide with their whims, who would be advocates of the errors which they hold, and would be afraid to rebuke their faults. These are the principles upon which many persons choose their religious teachers. But he goes on and says this, the true principle should be to select those who will faithfully declare the truth and who will not shrink from exposing and denouncing sin wherever it may be found. Though they may claim to be Christians, may claim to love Jesus, may have a form of godliness, their lives are governed not by a love for God and His Word, but ruled by selfishness. As Paul says back here in Timothy, he says, they are lovers of themselves, lovers of pleasure, rather than lovers of God. So they turn away. That is, they turn themselves away. They're not victims, but willing allies in the destruction of their own souls. Now, Let me conclude with this. You may be asking yourself, okay, but I'm not a preacher. Why are you you preaching this to me? Well, you may not be a preacher of the word, 
but you are a hearer of the word. And as a hearer of the word, there are two lessons I would like you to to take with you today. One, as a hearer of the word, you must have a proper understanding of biblical preaching. Biblical preaching. Because you're called to be part of the church, which means you are called to sit under the preaching of the word. And you must listen to and support the faithful preaching of the word and you must support no other. You must expect and even be grateful for preaching that convicts you of sin and warns you of danger. A pastor that is willing to strongly rebuke you is a pastor who loves you and no other. It is the false pastors who flatter your ego and speak to you smooth things. It is the false teacher who promises you everything, yet demands of you nothing. You see, a true shepherd, being like Jesus, will exhort you to enter by the narrow gate. For wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction. A true shepherd will warn you, beware of the false prophets who are inwardly ravenous wolves. A true shepherd will remind you of the words of Jesus himself when he said this, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Secondly, the second lesson is that you, we, myself included, we must understand that the greatest obstacle to our growth in grace and knowledge resides in our own heart. This is true of each and every one of us myself included. You see, it is, it's our desires, it's our passions, our wants, our selfishness, which causes the word to be choked and ineffectual in our lives. Yes, Satan tempts us. Yes, the world allures us. But the real enemy is the flesh. Our own selfish desires. That is why Jesus said we must learn to hate our own life. We must learn to say no to the flesh and yes to God. No to the world and yes to the word. No to my wants, but yes to God's will. Simply it means taking up the cross and following Jesus. It means loving Jesus more than yourself. It means putting Jesus first above yourself, and above others. It means discipleship. It means surrender. But he who loses his life for Christ finds it. Surrender to Christ and submission to his word, this is the path of life and joy and blessing. 
For this is the path of eternal life. This is the path of the abundant life in Jesus. The frustrated, defeated, dismal Christian is the Christian who is resisting the will and the word of God. Because in quietness and submission, God says, is your peace. Finally, the heart of God for his people, meaning the heart of God for you, is to bless you abundantly. The heart of God is that his people will be filled with the fruit of the Spirit, the gifts of his Spirit, the fullness of joy and power. God's will is to grant you victory over sin, strength in weakness, life in death. The heart of God for his people is to give them the fullness of Jesus. Yet, we must remember, God's gifts come in God's way. And his way is the way of submission to his word. Those who keep his word, Jesus said, and those who abide in his word, they will know the truth, and the truth will set them free. Amen? Let's stand and pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for the precious gift of your scripture. Lord, you have, you have given us a, a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. You've shown us the way to walk. You've shown us the, the narrow path which leads to life and, and fullness and abundance. We thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you, Lord, for your word. I pray, Lord, that you would, through your word and your spirit, through your word and your spirit, Lord, have your way in our lives. I pray that we would bow the knee to you. And I pray that we would take up the cross for you. I pray that we would be a, a people uh, immersed in your word, a people that think according to your word, that live according to your word, and a people that speak your word to others. Oh Lord, we are so grateful for the precious gift of your word, which leads us to you, the greatest of all gifts. Lord, remind us daily to be grateful, a grateful people. And we pray all this in Jesus' name and for Jesus' glory alone. Amen.